Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 15 through 19. The word of the Lord reads this way. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And this is the word of the Lord. Hey God, let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, help make our minds to understand what you have said, make our hearts to love it, and make our lives obedient to the lordship of your son, for your glory and our joy. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we continue this morning in our journey through the book of Hebrews. All that has been said in Hebrews, and these are the last things that the author wants us to remember. These are the final closing words this week and next. I would encourage you, that is your duty to have done the work in Hebrews thus far, if you've been here. That is so that as we come down the home stretch, or as we land the plane, if you will, that you would carry with you all the good that we have learned and come to love thus far. So that all of it would come rushing into your mind as we consider the last few items here in the book of Hebrews. It's a fancy way, long way of saying, I pray that you bring in the context of Hebrews into this passage Uh, even as we close out uh, the book of Hebrews. As for today, what an awesome passage. We are right back at talking about normal, mundane, everyday Christian behavior. We're talking about the things that should be just as much of a habit as brushing your teeth Or taking a shower at night because who wants to lay in a dirty bed every night? Make Christian obedience normal again. And let's make talking about Christian obedience normal again. It's rather taboo. What's particularly taboo in today's church context, and I think has seeped into some of our minds as well, is talking about a life of sacrifice. Don't get in my face about sacrifice. I sacrifice for my job, and I sacrifice for my kids all week long. But don't talk to me about sacrifice much further. Especially don't talk to me about praising God when I don't feel like it. Just be empathetic with me. Just listen to my pain. Don't say anything. Don't push me too hard when it comes to doing good to others. I already come to church and sit next to them. What more do you want me to do? And especially don't talk to me about placing myself under some man's authority. 
I just, I just want us to pause and just see this idea. What we're talking about in this passage, as with any other passage, is just should be that which is easy, mundane, a part of everyday Christian life. These kinds of things are just the norm for us. We just do these things. They're just habit. All Christian commands and ways of following the Lord should just be our habit. It should be the norm. There's nothing new here. There's nothing novel in this passage. And there's certainly nothing controversial in this passage. At least there shouldn't be. And so as we come to this passage, let's remember what has happened in Hebrews. And let's talk about a life of sacrifice. The first thing I want you to see is always be offering costly praise. Always be offering costly praise. Let's read verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledges his name. Now praise, praise is not something we often think of as being costly. Praise is something we naturally extend to someone or something else when they've done something that benefits us. Could benefit us physically, emotionally, mentally, and so on. Examples, God orchestrated a good day for me, and so I'm going to praise him. I mean, you don't think that way, but that's naturally what happens. Well, it's been a good day. Thank you, Lord. Another example. A child, without asking, cleans up the kitchen. And so you praise him or her for it. And that's natural, easy, normal, and even good. I, I'm not trying to cast shade on that kind of praise. That's, that's good. You should do that. But that's not the praise that we are told to offer up here in Hebrews. That's not what the author is talking about. We are told here to offer up a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of praise is offering praise to God when something doesn't go your way. When something is not preferable. So, for example, sacrifice of praise would be praising God when you lose a job. And I don't mean thank you, oh, thank you God. Like, that would not be a sacrifice of praise. Maybe quite the opposite. But an example, you lose your job. An example, you have a spouse who's being a pain in the neck. Or a wayward child that's broken your heart once again. Or a preacher that hits a nerve just a little too close to your pet sin. In those moments, do you offer up a sacrifice of praise? That's what he's referring to here in this passage. In those moments, though, what's our proclivity? You might be one, you might be all of these, you might be a different one, but likely our proclivity is not to offer up a sacrifice of praise, it's to do maybe one of the following, to get lost in the circumstances, like just trying to survive. I hear that phrase often. You ask someone, well, I mean, how's life going? I'm just trying to survive. 
What should be said is, man, you know, I'm, I, it's hard, but I'm still offering a sacrifice of praise. But what are we here? I'm just, I'm just surviving. I'm just, I'm just surviving until the weekend, or right? I'm just living for the weekend. I'm just, I'm just making it through, just one step in front of the other. I'm just, right? We just get lost in the circumstances. I can't see anything except what's in front of us. Or what do we do in those moments? Maybe you play the woe is me card like a little whiny child. Well, woe is me, poor is me, life's hard, blah, blah, blah. Or maybe you just work to make it better. You just put your nose to the grind and I'm just going to make my circumstance better. I'm just going to change it all. I'm going to fix this by tomorrow or by next year. Or maybe you go to questioning God. What are God's intentions in this? Why would he ordain this? Is, this? is is this for my good? Is he wise in this? Certainly this can't be the best route. Certainly this can't be for my good. Certainly this, is this discipline? Is it not discipline? What is it? Is God being just? Maybe you question God when circumstances are not going your way. Now listen carefully. If you're writing down, you should write this down. It takes an act of the will to lay ourselves on the altar before a God that you may not understand or particularly love what he's doing. It takes an act of the will to offer a sacrifice of praise when circumstances are not your ideal. No one is saying here, and I'm not saying that you need to like the circumstances. That's not the key to a sacrifice of praise. It's not to look at the bad circumstance and say, wow, that's awesome. Praise Jesus. You know, I just lost my job. Awesome. Praise Jesus. I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table tomorrow, but awesome. Praise God. No one's saying that you need to like the circumstance. The call here is to choose to trust the Lord no matter the circumstances. It's to hold in this hand bad circumstances and to hold in the other hands, but I still trust God. But I still believe He is good. But I still believe He will work this out for my good. It takes a willful decision to say, Lord, I still praise you. I praise you for your wisdom. I praise you for your trustworthiness, etc., etc. Now, I know, I know, supposedly being anything but whipped around by your emotions like a toddler isn't possible. But truly a Christian who has been set free can exercise the will and choose to praise God even when the emotions are far from wanting to do so. You can still say, I will praise you. On that point, praise cannot be primarily an emotionally driven action. Praise cannot be primarily an emotionally driven action. Certainly emotions can and should even be involved in there to some measure. 
but largely praise has been relegated to some flaky emotional experience or response. One that can be oftentimes manipulated by that captivating preacher or one extra chorus in that emotional garbage heap called Christian worship music. Offering praise comes out of some warm fuzzy that we got. That's why you need fog machines and lights at some churches. Because what's being said is empty of, of substance. So we, got, we have to get the praise up somehow. And so, here's the deal. If those are the only times we think of praising God, like when, we're, when it's an emotionally charged moment, not that praising can't happen in those moments, but if that's the only time we think of praising God, or if those are the only times that praise comes natural, then this passage isn't going to make much sense. And it certainly will not be easy. You're not going to feel like praising God in the circumstances of which he's referring to here. Now remember, his audience are Christians who are being persecuted. So, like, we're, we're pretty distant from that kind of persecution that's happening here. So certainly it would include not ideal circumstances. Now what is praising God? What is is praising God? Praising God, I'm defining as choosing to ascribe in a posture of gratitude back to God what he has already said about himself. Praising God is choosing to ascribe And a posture of like affirming gratitude, thankfulness, back to God, what he has already said about himself. So praise is not ascribing to God something that he hasn't said about himself. So ascribing, oh, God, you're just like Santa Claus and you give me all the best gifts, right? That would not be praise. I couldn't think of a better example. That was off the fly. I'm sure you can think of some. Uh, here's, a, here's one. Praise, praise God, I know that you are all loving and you don't judge anyone. Right? That would be not praise unto God. It would be praise unto some idol of your choosing. God, you are just in your dealings with me. God, you are wise in everything you've orchestrated in this circumstance. God, you are kind to me, even though this hurts. Praise, ascribing to God in a posture, like a a heart that is loving what you're saying. Back to God, what he has already said about himself. And particularly in this context, it is praising God in the midst of circumstances that are not ideal. Someone said this, when we bring a sacrifice of praise, we choose to believe that even though life is not going as we think it should, God is still good and can be trusted. 
I'll give you an example from Psalm 31 with David, verse 9 through 17. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme against me, as they plot to take my life. That sounds not, like not very ideal circumstances, right? Um, verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. He goes on, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. David's not denying the circumstances. He's not downplaying, oh, it's not that bad. See, it could be worse. You could be like the person in the hospital and about to die or in hospice. Like, it could be worse. Or you could be on the streets poor. It's just the circumstances are bad. Don't have to downplay those. But God, you're good. What we tend to do is we, as a side note here, we tend to downplay the circumstances in order to make ourselves feel good, which does two things wrong. It leads us to not depend on God, instead to depend on our um, uh, redefining of the situation. And it also leads us to not view the situation wrongly, which then leads to a bad outcome, practically. So that's just a bad road. But if, if in that moment I trust you, God, then you're going to lean into the Lord to understand him more clearly and rightly. You will also not color the situation wrongly, which means you can deal with it rightly. You see, when we choose to praise God in spite of the circumstances or the storms, He is honored and our faith grows deeper. How does our faith grow deeper? Certainly, faith is a gift of God. Romans 12, even the measure of it is a gift of God. But God has ordained that our faith, being like a muscle, That as it's exercised by willfully choosing, that that faith grows. No, I'm going to trust the Lord here. I'm not going to trust in redefining the circumstances or just getting myself through the moment or just. I'm going to trust the Lord. Now, don't confuse this, like this, this, all right, I'm in circumstances that are bad, and and I got to trust the Lord and make it through this. Don't confuse this with something akin to like working yourself into a trance. It's popular, particularly in charismatic circles, 
when circumstances are bad, you will hear things like, I just got to get my praise on so I can make it through it, or I just got to worship in the storm. Now hear me clearly, those statements are fine, but what they often mean is I just got to sing this over and over and over and over again until I feel good. I got to say this over and over and over and over again until I'm caught up in the moment, until I get into a hype or a trance, which is just foolish, flaky, and a roller coaster for you and the people around you. The intent of a sacrifice of praise. Again, if you understand the context, it's, it's like him saying to them, remember everything in this moment that I've said from chapter 1 to 12 in your moment of suffering. When it's not good, remember the things that we've said and ascribe those to God. Rich theological truths that you remember and that you praise God for in the moment. God, you are this, even though my circumstances are not ideal. Even though this is painful, I still trust you. Now, he says continually, through him, then, as Jesus, of course, let us continually do everything that I've just described. Our sacrifice of praise should be happening all the time. Our praise of God is not to be based on our opinion of his job performance. Continually. It's, it's not based on our judgment of God's doings. Praise cannot be treated as a reward we give God for his obvious blessings to us. And yet my guess is for many of us in this room, if not most, the primary times that we offer praise to God are when we're happy with the cards he's given you in your hand. I'm standing around the kitchen Things are going well. Food's coming together. Praise Jesus. I'm, scenario two, I'm standing around the kitchen. Things aren't getting cooked just quite right, and I'm running out of time. What are you doing in that moment? Are you praising God in that moment too? Things at work. Your boss being a jerk. Being mean, like legitimately unjust to you. Are you able to offer a sacrifice of praise to the Lord in that moment? My guess is, is that that's, our, our, sacrifice, our praising is more oriented towards responding like, hey God, I approve of what you've done. Good job, buddy. Good job, sir. But real praise continues regardless of circumstances. You say, well, how am I to do this all the time? I have to talk to other people. I can't just be walking around saying, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, right? True, true. But the posture of your heart, what comes out in those moments? 
Is your, is your heart posture towards a sacrifice of praise, or is it towards many of the other examples I've listed already? The natural reflex of your will in times less desirable. What's that look like? I'll give you one more quick thought here before we move on to the next point. But only a humble heart can offer up a sacrifice of praise. Only a humble heart. Without a humble heart, you will never praise God in times less desirable. Why? Because you think you know what's best for your life, and in that moment, there's no way God could know any better. Only a humble heart will praise the Lord when things are not the way they want them or think they should be. The sacrifice of praise comes from a humble heart that considers God's way above one's self. His ways are better than my ways. His ways are better than this person's ways. The end of that verse there says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What do we have there? The fruit of the lips that ascribe to God what is right and true of him. His name and all that his name means. Next. Sacrifice for the good of others. You can add in there sharing what you have. Sacrifice for the good of others. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All right. The good done to others here is a sacrifice. You're like, yeah, duh. What I mean is, this isn't just pay it forward or whatever other stupid cultural nicety we can come up with. This isn't just be kind today. The command here is more than that. This is once again something that comes out of a sacrifice to others. So this is doing good that's going to cost you something. That's a sacrifice. Now be careful, just because you think something is costly doesn't mean it's actually costly. But something that's truly costly. It's easy to do good to others out of the abundance, or to do good to others when there's a benefit for you. It's the same as praising God. It's easy to praise God when things are going the way you want and you receive something out of it. It's easy to do good to others when you get something out of it. It's easy to share your extra time. It's easy to share your extra money. It's easy to share your tools that you're not currently using. 
It's easy to share your skill when you don't need it for making money. But a sacrifice means it's costly. How about doing good for someone who annoys you? Might be a little costly. How about sacrificing for the good of leaders who have made you mad? How about sacrificing for the good of others when you really just want that extra $15 cheeseburger? The good he's talking about here is one that's costly. It's a sacrifice. Let's also not miss the context. This is in the context of believers to believers. Not that we shouldn't do good to all people, certainly. But the primary place where we should be doing good is with the people of God. I think some of us have gotten caught up, though, in giving our best to everyone else. Especially giving our best to pagans who then use it for Satan. Some of us give all of our best time, talents, skills, mental capacity to everyone else but God's people. To your pagan employers. And then when it comes time to share and do good to others, you got nothing left. You got no space left, no time left, no. We should share. We should do good. It should cost us something. It should be with the people of God. Again, not that we shouldn't do good to all people. We certainly should. Next sub point here, you should actively do good and share what you have. Again, let me give you like what he's not saying so I can tell you what he is saying. He's not saying just don't be a burden to others. See, see some of us think well, I'm just being, I'm doing good for others if I just stay out of their way, if I just not be a burden. Well, I mean, that, that certainly probably be a good thing. <laughs> Don't want to be a, a burden to others unduly. Or if I just stay out of the way of others. No, here's what he's saying. Actively do good and share with others. To seek it. To put it on the priority list. To make it a task that you get to each day. I would encourage you, spouses, just because your spouse is doing good to others and sharing doesn't mean you are. You could just be lazy and selfish and taking the credit for what your spouse does. He's saying, actively go do good to others. Here, maybe another way to say it like, be thoughtful and intentional. 
And he says that such a sacrifice is pleasing to God. Such a sacrifice is pleasing to God. It's an aroma to him. It honors the Lord. It respects the Lord. In many ways, it's a praise itself. In many ways, it's ascribing to God what you believe in your heart, worked out in action. Such a sacrifice is pleasing to God. It should please us to know that my action is pleasing to God. Next, obey and submit to your leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey and submit to your leaders. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I love this passage. (laughs) I think the last time I had to preach this passage, I gave it to Russ. Russ, you preach this passage. One of the reasons I love this passage genuinely is that it flies in the face of our world right now. It just flies in the face of everything inside the church, outside the church. It just... One of the reasons it flies in the face of our world right now is that all people, apparently all people, and all positions of power are necessarily oppressive and abusive. That's just that's the general theme of our world right now. That all people in power use their power for their own good to protect themselves at the cost of everybody around them. Now there are that's certainly true. There are leaders who lead that way. That is certainly true. There's also, in light of that too, there's also a temptation on a topic like this because our culture that has creeped into many of us is deeply suspicious of any authority. We're prone, we're also prone to sinfulness ourselves and prone to despise authority. We need to reject it. That's why we're so quick to complain or quick to grumble, just like Israel wanting to go back to Egypt. And so a preacher's temptation is to present this verse in a way that doesn't carry the punch that the author is intending. So let me give you an example. I'm going to give you an example of bad preaching, okay? You all obey your leaders. And you can do that because, you know, don't, don't worry, God's, God's going to hold your leaders accountable. You know, and, and don't you know that, that, don't, don't you know that God's going to hold them accountable, like, They won't get away with anything. You can just trust and you can obey. And don't forget, if they're telling you to sin, you you should definitely not follow them. Now listen, everything I just said was true. That's all true. But what got lost in the midst of all the accommodating phrases that followed? What got lost? Obey and submit to your leaders got lost with all the accommodations afterwards, with all the caveats afterwards that are true. Instead of simply saying, obey your leaders, and then describing what that looks like, and then letting the people of God, the Holy Spirit, and their Bible have a wrestling match. 
That's what should happen. So here you go. Obey your leaders. Amen. Amen. There we go. Thanks, Jordan. Leaders. What's he mean by leaders? He means your church leaders. That's the context. So he doesn't mean just elders, but certainly elders. He doesn't mean Joe Biden or Jordan Peterson or Oprah. He doesn't mean your boss at work. There's other verses that talk about these things. That's not what he's talking about here. Some of us obey our bosses 10 times better than we obey our church leaders. I do wonder if money has anything to do with that. But he's referring to your church leaders. Now, what's he mean by obey? If you go look up the semantic range of the word obey, I had a guy come to me one time and said, well, he, looked, he thought he was cute. He looked up in the expository dictionary, and the word here used means to persuade. So he comes to me and, and does what's called an exegetical fallacy. If you don't know what that means, I can explain it to you later. But, uh, and he takes the expository dictionary and says it means to persuade. So that means you, pastor, are supposed to persuade me to follow you. So I said, huh, I'll have to go study that. Here's the fruit of that study. It's about 10 years old now, but it's fun going back over it. It does mean to persuade, certainly. But the, the, the Greek here is actually what's called middle voice. Middle voice is the idea of doing the action to one's self. So it does mean to persuade, but it actually means to persuade one's self. It's in second person plural, meaning you all. And if you go study the word obey and its semantic range, it literally means persuade yourself to their point of view. So literally, Here's what he says. When he says, obey your leaders, he literally means you all with an italics on it. Persuade yourself to the point of view of your leaders. Now that's strong language. So let's practice this, okay? Here's my point of view. I should cheer for the Green Bay Packers football team I said football, for those of you who don't know that that's a football team, for the rest of the season. Now persuade yourselves to that point of view. You got it? Absolutely not. That was a Bengals fan that said absolutely not, by the way. They're going to need a better team to root for the rest of the year with Joe Burrow being out. Sorry, guys. I was genuinely sad for y'all. I, I, seriously. That is a bummer. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. Life is going to move on outside the Bengals. Amen. <laughs> All right, moving on. I don't want to uh, make everyone else feel left out who doesn't like football. All right, let's practice this again. You should sell everything you have. Give your money to me so I can buy a private jet. See how that works? Absolutely, on this one. Amen. 
I mean, it worked for people like Creflo Dollar and those guys. All right, I was being silly for a reason, because we're not in that realm. But at the very least, here's what it means. You need to consider your leaders and what they have taught you in every aspect of your life. We just got off, we're just coming off the heels of Hebrews 3, 7. Consider the outcome of their lives and their faith and imitate it. Let me give you some more teeth to this, though. Give you some teeth. Something to grab a hold of. Something practical. If you're going to, to work out the word obey here, every time you engage a church leader, particularly an elder, whether it's preaching like right now, a Sunday school class, a conversation after class, an email exchange, texting, phone call, or the engaging of something they've said in the past for something current you're dealing with right now. Every time, you must, in order to honor God and not sin, enter the conversation with a teachable, obedient heart. With a teachable, correctable heart. Meaning, I, 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 leader, I need you to lead me. I need your help to understand. I need your guidance. I need your direction. I'm not connecting the dots over here. I need to figure out what's going on over here. I can't tell you, though, how many people I engage in the church who absolutely positively sin at this point. This means that grumbling at the guidance of your leaders is sinful. This means gossiping with another about your leaders is sinful. It means coming into a conversation with your mind already made up is sinful. Listen, I've experienced this many times. Someone comes into a conversation with me, their leader, and what they really want is for me to obey them. That's what they really want at the end of the day. They want me to do the ministry their way. They want me to talk their way. They want me to believe their way. Or they want me to obey their law or so on. Listen, that's not the way this works. That's not what Hebrews is saying here. It is exactly, extremely the opposite. If you're already obeying yourself, you can't obey your leaders. And you shouldn't expect your leaders to obey you. It's not how it works. It would make my job easier if I just had to obey you in some ways. It would be easier. I mean, where it would be hard is if your call to obedience wasn't based on the scriptures and we start getting all these mixed directions. And, but it'd be easier. I just could walk around pleasing you all day. But that's not the way this works. Just gave you a, a practical, it, it at least should work out this way. We can say more about that, but I'm going to move on. Next, submit to your leaders. 
Same kind of thrust coming in to submit. Submission, though, is not and cannot be at its highest ideal just simply doing what you're told when you happen to be told something to do. Submission is not just doing what you're told when you happen to be told something to do. That's not what it means in marriage. That's not what it means when it comes to obeying the Lord. You've heard me say this before. Submission is a glad, willful seeking the will of another. Is a glad seeking to place yourself under that person. Kids, you should do this with your parents. Wives, do this with your husbands. Husbands, do this with the church and your leaders. Think about practical decisions in life. It's so easy for us to make major life decisions without the guidance of your elders. Now listen, don't be dumb and hyperbolize what I'm saying. There's not a one of us who wants to tell you whether or not to eat at Burger King or McDonald's. They're both garbage. And there ain't a one of us that's telling you that you need to go live on a farm or you should go live in the ghetto. Not a one of us are doing that. But life decisions, when it comes to applying the scriptures in your lives. Now hear me clearly. You have to think about life decisions more deeply than just A or B. Like for example, since like everyone is moving, like, in, you know, moving, thankfully, locally. Like, praise God for that. But everyone's moving, so I thought using a house, moving as an example here. You have the surface decision, which house, right? Like, that, should it be this house or this house? That's a, that's a pretty obvious decision. But it's, there's more than that. You have, you have motives. Why that house and not this house? Why not the house I already have versus this house? You also have the process of getting to the decision. Did I make it foolishly in a vacuum or in the wisdom of many counselors? Did I just make it on a whim or is it an emotional response or am I just running from problems of my past? I mean, what's the, what's the process of getting to the decision? Or what, how about what's the posture of my heart? Did I do it in arrogance or did I do it in humility? Did I just assume I had it figured out? or did Like, what's going on there? How about, does my decision honor God and love other people? When it comes to submitting to elders, the the goal here is not for us to say you should buy house A or house B. It's to lead you to submit to the scriptures in all of these things. Which means I want you to think about all of these things as as you come to that decision. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Okay, all right, good. And as long as none of those are clearly sinful, then choose house A or choose house B. It's no elder's role to say, buy this house or don't buy that house. But if there is sin driving the decision, 
It is an elder's role to call you to submission in repentance and faith as it relates to that sin. Absolutely. So there you go. Now that everyone has bought houses or moved, I mean, you have someone moved last week. I, I think someone's moved at least once a month for the past year. So if you feel like that just was for you, um, you're clueless, okay? Because the rest of the church just moved. So how's that for an example for stepping on everyone's toes? Next sub point here. Don't obey and submit to your leaders as though they should never change. I'm just giving you some wisdom and, and application here. Listen, your elders are human. I don't know if you know that. Your leaders are human. And God's chosen means. Just like he chose humans to write the Bible. They should grow and they should change as the Lord sanctifies them. What happens frequently, I've seen this over the past 20 years, is someone stops growing and decides to veer onto a different path and then cries, but the elders have changed. But the leaders have changed. As if they're not supposed to grow and change. Just as a side note here, I, I personally have made zero major theological shifts since 2006 when I became Reformed. Everything outside of that has been simply adjusting and refining the application and the understanding of my major theological commitments. But I've still grown and changed over the years. If you don't grow and change with your leaders, at some point you're going to find yourself all alone. And it's easier to blame other people for it. So, so don't, don't think this, obey and submit and put them in this like stagnant, stationary position. And I, I want to obey and submit as long as they look like that. And as they grow and change, it becomes easy out. Next subpoint: they are working for your good. They are working for your good. Listen, you, you, good leaders know that God's going to hold them accountable. God knows that. They know that. They are watching over your soul. That's what the passage here. That, that's why house A or B does not matter to me. Someone accused me one time of, of saying they couldn't have a nicer truck than, that I said they couldn't have a nicer truck than me. I'm like, I don't care what truck you have. It's just ludicrous. What I care is your soul in the process. Are you going to lose your soul in the process? That's hypothetical, by the way. Like, what? They're watching over your soul. What's that mean? One of the implications of that is that obeying and submitting to them as they watch over your soul, it's a matter of life and death. 
That's what's at stake in verse 17. So this isn't just a willy-nilly, I get around to it, or this isn't just something I can take or leave. This isn't just something I can depart from and go find something better whenever I choose. It's a matter of life and death. They're watching over your soul. Another implication of this part where he's talking about the watching of your soul and God holding them accountable is that if God's holding them accountable, then it should be God who is working through them. Because what's he going to hold them accountable to? Man's ways? No, he's going to hold them accountable to his ways, to his ends, to his goals. means God is working through them. Even in their failings, church. Maybe the thing you need to learn is patience. And so the Lord uses their failings to teach you patience. They are working for your good to find God's way. He says, make it a joy for them. So this is not just, so going back to like the idea of submission, it's not just do what you're told when you're told. That, that's the furthest from the heartbeat of this passage. But it's not just staying out of the way or not being burdensome. He says to make it a joy for them. He's saying to, to follow, to obey, to submit in a way that makes it a joy. So how do you make it a joy for your leaders? I'm going to give you a simple list. (laughs) It's not an all-inclusive list, and none of it's profound. By following Christ, by being humble, being teachable, seeking your leader's good, Not holding your leaders to your own dumb laws and standards. Only God's. Obeying and submitting, as the passage says. Sharing your good things with us. There's a passage specifically about that, sharing your, sharing your resources with your, the ones who teach you. Be thankful. Shower us with lots of gifts and the dedication of your firstborn child. He ends with this. He says, if you will do this, it will be of eternal advantage for you. I know I just took what he said and I put it in the positive sense. He says it'd be dis, it would not be advantageous for you to do otherwise. But if you will do this, it will be eternally advantageous for you. Eternally. 
It'll be eternally advantageous. And let me, let me open up the, the telescope here for you a little bit. Let me broaden the picture. It'll be good for yourself, certainly. How many of us, though, think we are capable of watching after our own souls ourselves? You're not, right? And I don't have my hands up in the air for that purpose. <laughs> I'm thankful as a plurality of elders, right? Plurality of leaders. But not just for yourself. How about for your kids? It can be eternally advantageous for you that then is advantageous for your kids, for your spouse, for your kids' kids, and the generations that come after. Be good for your neighbor, for your boss, for your coworkers. As it's eternally advantageous for you, it's, it's eternally advantageous for the people around you. Listen, I, I want to point this out. For many of you, your lives have changed so much even in just the past year. Your obeying and submitting has been eternally advantageous for you. And some of you are tasting that right now. Be thankful for it. Praise God for it. I want to end with this last major point, although we'll be here just for a second. Pray, protect your conscience, and desire honor. I'm just going to give this a couple minutes here, but pray for us, he says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Just a couple quick comments. First of all, a clear conscience is a gift of God. We all walk with guilty consciences because we know deep down we are sinners. We may not admit it, we may try to cover it up, and we may even try to blame it on God. And it's especially hard when you have other people heaping sin on you all the time. Based on their standards. But the author is saying here that his aim, his desire, his goal... And the outcome of that goal has been a clear conscience. Right? What's this in the midst of? It's, it's in the midst of persevering. It's in the midst of persevering faith, in the midst of suffering. And whatever he's experiencing right now, because there's something clearly keeping him from returning to them. There's some adverse condition happening. He says, yet in all of it, I have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things. We should do likewise, desire to act honorably in all things, to do what is upright, to do what is upstanding. This isn't a call to be legalists, which simply means an attempt to earn your salvation by keeping your own standards. It's a call to live in a way that honors the Lord. Pray. 
Protect your conscience and desire honor. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the grace of this passage. Father, I pray that it, it hits where it should hit, and where it shouldn't hit, it should fly on to the person behind us. Father, I pray that you'd give us humble hearts to hear, to apply, give us wisdom where we need it. Father, help us to offer sacrifice Sacrifices of praise in circumstances that we don't like. Help us in those moments to turn our eyes away from everything else and turn them to you. And say, but Father, you are still good. Father, you are still trustworthy. Father, help us to, to rest in the abundance of your grace so that we can sacrificially give what we have in sharing and doing good for others. And Father, help us as we lay our lives down to submit and obey the leaders that you've put over us, myself included. Father, I have three elders that I must obey and submit my life to. So, Father, help me to do the same. Help me to model that the same. Help us to see the eternal advantage of someone watching over our souls and us making it a joy for them. I pray that the way I live my life would bring joy. The way I submit and follow my elders, that it would bring joy to their lives that I would be a joy to deal with, a joy to walk with. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.